Welcome to Scripps Talks. My name is Bob Stewart, and today is the last day that I am on the clock for the School of Journalism. It's been a great run, and I'm really excited to spend part of this day talking to Professor Wafa Unis from Fitchburg State University. I met Wafa at a conference in Shanghai, China, of all places, and was stunned when she started presenting about Car Vananda, who is one of our uh, one of our patron saints at, at Ohio University. So, Wafa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to talk about Car. Now, you and Car go back a ways, if I may mm-hmm. put it that way. But you started working on your dissertation about Car Vananda as a doctoral student at Arizona State University, and I'm, I'm really interested to know how you became acquainted with Car to begin with. I actually started working with CAR when I was writing a paper on the origins of science reporting. But in terms of, of CAR Van Anda, I, I encountered him when I was trying to understand how science journalism originated in the States and how it evolved into what it is now, taking into account the fact that we don't have a lot of it anymore. And so as I started to dig into that research, I started to realize the influence and impact that the New York Times had on the development of science journalism and making it a fixture within newspapers. That, of course, the one thing led to another, and I began to look into the individuals who were unique in the development of this type of reporting, and that led me to Car Van Anda. And I started to understand, okay, this is not just an individual who made some simple contribution. This is a character, a personality, and someone who I couldn't find a lot about. And that was what baffled me, is that as I started to uncover the influence that Car Van Anda had, In the context of science journalism, I started to learn about the influence that he had and other elements of reporting, disaster reporting in terms of the reporting of the Titanic. And all of these things had me searching for, okay, who is Carvananda? And as I looked through the material that was available, he was really relegated to the indexes. There really wasn't that much about him. There were a few lines in some seminal texts that said who he was and that he was a prominent figure. But in terms of understanding his prominence, there really wasn't much out there. And so that's really what got me digging and trying to figure out, well, who is Car Van Anda exactly? Beyond the little footnotes, what did he really contribute to contemporary journalism? I think we should try to talk a little bit about who Car Van Anda was, because not everybody listening to this podcast will have even heard of him. I mean, most people probably will not have heard of him. The reason I am interested in talking about Carvananda specifically is because he came to Ohio University as a teenager, um, 16, 17 years old, something like that, to study science back in 1880. Fast forward to today real quick, and then we'll go back and fill in some of the details. We give a journalism award almost every year. We give the Carvananda Award for a lifetime of achievement. Now, I guess the question some listener might ask is, well, how do you go from being a science student coming to Ohio University in 1880 to all of a sudden having this award named after you? So let me toss it back to you, Wafa, and have you pick up that story a little bit. What happened when he left Ohio University 
a couple years after he came here. He was always interested in the sciences, even as a child. So we see, like, at his very young age, when he's just barely coming out of being a toddler, he's fascinated with physics and with astronomy and learning about science and math. We see this from very early on, before he he goes to Ohio University. And at the same time in, in his youth, he was also very interested in printing and the newspaper business. And he creates this little makeshift printing press set of parts from other printing presses when he's very young and, and a child in school running around and talking to his neighbors and getting little bits of information, printing it and passing out this little newsletter that he makes. And so we see both of these sides of him very early on. When he enters university, he's still doing that on the side. So as a student, as a science student, he's still working within the news industry. So he's starting out as a typesetter first, and then he leaves and he, he works for some smaller local papers, eventually working his way up. He works for the Baltimore Sun before the New York Times. And so the Baltimore Sun being very well-known, reputable publication at that time, he's really moved up the ranks rather quickly. And so just years out of leaving Ohio University, he's really made a name for himself already in the newspaper industry. And so he still merges the love of these two things, though. He's always kind of has his foot in both worlds. I think that that's what makes him, you know, really interesting individual is that he shows an aptitude, a high aptitude, really in, in everything that he tries to do. And so it makes him of unique figures. You, you, you would think this, you know, Carvin and the managing editor of the New York Times during its seminal moment in its history is kind of hyper focused on the newspaper industry. And this is what he does and what he thinks about all the time. But in fact, that's not the case. He's constantly living in, in all these worlds and engaging his curiosity across the board. Leaving Ohio University to enter the newspaper business is a huge step, but he never actually leaves his study of the sciences that he's begun there. Let's tick off some bullet points of things that he's often credited with accomplishing at the New York Times. I mean, he was there from 1904 until I think he stepped down as an active managing editor in 1925. Is that correct? Yes. But anyway, he was there for 20 plus years. Let's put together a little bullet list of points that historians credit Carvananda with accomplishing during his tenure at the New York Times. One was, you mentioned the, the Titanic. What was he known for with respect to the Titanic? When we look at it now, we wouldn't consider it to be unique. We'd kind of consider it to be the standard. And that's what makes it so interesting is that when other newspapers were attempting to cover the tragedy of the Titanic sinking, they were largely wrong in the coverage, some outright suggesting that the Titanic did not sink and that, that people were fine. But what was interesting about Carvin and his coverage started before we had confirmed that anything had happened. And what Carvin and did was upon understanding that there was something happening, he evaluated the potential for the unsinkable ship to sink. So this seems like it shouldn't be something that's unique, but it was. There was a lot of resistance to the fact that this was even possible, that this was something that could have happened. So it seemed blasphemous to think about, right, or to consider. So he looked at blueprints of the Titanic. He acquired and then looked at blueprints of the Titanic to determine, can this ship sink? And if it were to sink, what would be required to happen 
for it to have suck. So this was kind of an interesting initial step for an editor of a publication at the time, is that this is how he starts to think, okay, well, let me determine, is this possible? If it's possible, how does it happen? Let me look at blueprints of the ship. Let's figure out what this means. He immediately triages his staff and, you know, he he gets them to kind of look at context, background, science, you know, engineering, all of these other elements that he loves, right? This is this is Carl Hernandez. He's, he's not just worried about how do I get this news out quickly? It's how do I get this news out accurately and in his mind that it's not just confirming quotes and that's not just getting information from authorities and individuals that's actually verifying if scientifically these things are possible if engineering wise what are we potentially seeing in the sinking of the ship and what does that mean he begins to triage his staff trying to get them to kind of look at these other elements in terms of the construction of the ship and then he goes to the issue of the wireless telegraph is that if the Titanic, he looks at, at when the last transmission was made, and he determines based off of that, if the Titanic was fine, a tra- another transmission would have been made already. And so he looks at prior communications, and then the communications that were occurring or not occurring, you know, after the information had come through that something could happen. Once he determines this, then he's convinced something bad has happened. So he sets up the time staff in a hotel across from where the survivors are returning when we get to that part in the story. He sets up phone lines in this hotel, which again, when we think about it now, we're like, okay, well, yeah, this how, that's what you would do. But this is unprecedented at the time. The number of phone lines he's set up and the way that he's created the system for reporting on this disaster is unlike what we have seen before. So he's working to get instantaneous information. And this is another thing that makes Carvananda unique and very significant in the conversation of contemporary journalism. It's how he utilizes the technology. So he's always been interested in the technology and the, and the, and the telegraph and the telephone and using all of these things to help reporting. He's very strategic in his implementation of them. And he knows the people that are behind them. He has a relationship with Marconi during this time as well. And so he gets his reporters to make these connections with these individuals and to get more information than other people were able to get at the time. And so he's he's layering all of these advantages he has, but the completeness of his reporting is what sets him apart. This is not just shock and awe. For Carl Van Anda, this is not just wide-scale tragedy that he knows will sell papers. This is extensive coverage on the engineering of the Titanic, on the use of telegraph, on the use of telephone. All of these technologies, he's really splashing across the front page of the New York Times that revolutionizes the way that we understand disaster news coverage, but also, of course, gives us the most complete reporting of the sinking of the Titanic of any paper at that time. I know that uh, the, the New York Times, under his direction, won a, the Pulitzer for its coverage of World War One, And I wonder if you know anything specific about their coverage of World War One that would have been uh, noteworthy to win a Pulitzer. The way that they were able to utilize, again, the telegraph system in getting information, coded information back and forth from their war correspondence was unique. 
they actually coded their own language to make sure that their transmissions wouldn't be stopped. This is a part of the reporting that I think was probably most discussed in terms of the way they acquired information. But it was really the completeness of the reporting, I think, in all, is that Carvin and it really did not shy away from printing complete statements, reports, and treaties in the publication. He pulled out all the stops, is how you might say it, when it came to reporters who were trying to transmit information. So anything he could possibly do to get the most information, the most complete information, he did. And at times he was very aggressive in these measures. It was almost as though he'd had some sort of foresight as well, and that he was in constant communication with his war correspondents in a way that was unique in terms of the publications covering the war at the time. And I think this is in part due to the fact that the New York Times had the resources to do that, and they weren't quite as limited in those resources as some of their competitors, but that they prioritized it as well. And Caribbean ended did this almost to a fault was the amount of information that he put in the Times about everything was immense. And it actually garnered some criticism while he was managing the publication. And individuals who felt that his coverage of some of these things was so extensive that it was almost exploitive. That, I think, was a double-edged sword for him. But certainly, the way that he utilized his war correspondence and the coded messages that they sent over telegraph between the Times and the correspondence was certainly unique. The following year, in 1920, Ohio University gave him an honorary degree. I don't know if he actually came to Athens to receive it. I don't know if anybody knows it. Perhaps you would know the answer to that question, but at least it is the 100th anniversary uh, we're celebrating this year of the awarding of that honorary degree. Do you have any idea if he actually came and got it? I've been looking for that information. So <laughs> fingers, fingers crossed. I find out a little bit more about that. But as you know, the mystery of Carvananda is extensive. I have been looking for information regarding that to, to see what actually happened. Well, let's talk but about know... that, that mystery. Let's talk about it because you're doing this extensive research, but it's against quite a bit of headwind because of the mystery involved. So what are some of the, you know, what are some of the things that you want to know and you haven't been able to find out yet? Oh, gracious. A, a lot of things. There's a lot of things I want to know that I haven't been able to find out yet. There is a lot of history when it comes to uncovering Carvin Ando. There have been many attempts to really understand who he was. He's immensely private. Even as I communicate with members of his family and have in the past, you, you get this sense that it permeates. It's, it's part of the culture of the family as well. You know, to kind of keep his legacy his own and to not transfer ownership of that or certainly a reluctance to uncover things that perhaps he himself wanted to keep private. He was an immensely private person. He didn't, he, you know, he's very vocal about not giving interviews and having never given an interview and not wanting to taste his own medicine in a sense. And so we don't have a lot of that kind of personal look that we do with a lot of people in his position now. So this is another thing that makes him uh, kind of unique in, in, in evaluating who he was in light of how big similar individuals are in contemporary journalism. So 
he was almost a recluse in the sense that he really spent his time at the Times and he spent his time at home. He did do some society things, but you would never know of it really, except for that it's mentioned in a line in an article in, in a paper that notes that he was there, but you wouldn't see an interview with him. And so this character is really interesting. I uncovered a few things about him that I thought were fantastic early on, just random things. I was searching eBay. I found a little booklet from his estate sale after his passing, all of these things that he had in his home. You kind of got a little peek into Carvananda's home, which is really hard to do, I think. All the little things that he owned, and, and it was almost, it was just a strange kind of like look, because I, I had been researching all these big things that surrounded him, and, and getting to see the, you know, silver tray that he owned was was something so odd and intimate about that experience because you just don't know him. And then I was talking to a family member of his and, and he mentioned just having heard about how he had 12 servants in his home at a time. And, and you get this kind of grandiose perspective of this individual. And at the same time, you don't know him. And I think that's what's fantastic about Carvin Anda because it forces your evaluation of him to be one that sits very firmly within the context of his time. And that's what's so fascinating to me about him. I almost feel like if we knew more about the little, tiny, intimate details of his life and his relationships, it would take away from the focus on the contribution in terms of the context of the time. And this is something that's so vitally important, I think, in understanding historical moments in journalism in terms of figures is that when you remove them from all the pieces, right, when you remove them from the historical context, when you remove them from the work, it doesn't fully allow us to appreciate how important historical context is in motivations within the evolution of American journalism. Here we have this gentleman who is just so intertwined with the fabric of American journalism that you can't, because of his dedication to privacy, you almost can't remove him from that. And, and so it makes this analysis of his impact in terms of contemporary journalism that much richer, but at the same time, incredibly frustrating, because of course you want to know more. For whatever sense that makes, <laughs> if it does make any. To get back to your original question, I really wanted to know more about his relationships with individuals like Einstein, with Egyptologists that he had conversations with. When I looked through his papers that are housed in the New York Public Library as part of the New York Times papers, there were so many interesting letters between him and, and individuals, even letters from Marconi. And you really, you know, these are just little slivers of information you have but knowing and understanding his commitment to learning about the world around him, whether it was learning hieroglyphics or it was studying the theory of relativity, really understanding how committed he was to that and reading the articles he wrote for Scientific American, I really itched to know what his thoughts were and what his conversations were with major individuals of his time. And I think that's, I hope one day that we do find or there are some record of, of those conversations so we can better understand his thoughts on what was happening around him. 
Well, pretty good for a college dropout, I would have to say. <laughs> it's a testament to Ohio University. Well, indeed, <laughs> indeed. A little bit goes a long way, I guess. Yep. If anybody goes and, and, and looks up Carbonanda and Einstein, they're going to find a very fascinating reference to um, Carbonanda finding an error. So I wonder if you could tell us that story. So he sends a reporter to cover a lecture by, by Einstein on theory of relativity, and there's a transcription on a board of a formula. The reporter has copied it down and sends it to the Times. This is, you know, here it is. This is what was written. This is what it said. And Carvinanda looks at it and says, well, this is not right. Something's not right here. We're talking about a time where the theory of relativity is not well known. People are still you know, their their minds are still a little bit mushy when it comes to this kind of thinking. So it's odd that Carvinanda, you, know, you would think, is suggesting that something might be wrong with this. But as you learn more about Carvinanda, it seems just about right. It's, <laughs> that seems about right. And he would look at it and say, okay, well, maybe this isn't correct. So he asked, are you sure? Is this what it looks like? Is this what it says? And the reporter, sure, this is how the transcribing, they, he transcribed it correctly, and this is what it says. And so he writes to Princeton University. He says, you know, I, I believe this is incorrectly transcribed. And so Einstein actually looks at this and says, well, this is true. I actually wrote this the wrong way. And so he ends up correcting Einstein and that Einstein has written this down incorrectly. It just inverted a part of the formula and Carvinanda recognizes this and says, this can't be right. This becomes kind of a, a larger story and one of the bigger ones with Carvinanda and, you know, really suggests something interesting about him when it comes to knowing the formula, but also in consideration to this idea of accuracy. And this is an interesting thing that we see throughout Carvinanda's management of the New York Times. And it's a conversation we have in contemporary journalism today is, is how do you define accuracy and what is our level of commitment to it? And so here you see the opportunity to say, well, an expert wrote this down. The person who should know this wrote it down. This is how it was transcribed. This, it, we've determined that the transcription is correct. So it must be okay. And Carvinander could have just printed it as is. But his dedication goes down to the point where he's saying, let me actually verify that this is the same thing that is recorded elsewhere, that, you know, this is actually correct. Something seems off, despite the fact that an expert has evaluated this, let me reevaluate it and, and ensure that it's correct. Beyond kind of the uh, fun story that it is with Van Anda, it also isn't an interesting moment in terms of, of his setting the standard for expert evaluation, expert insight in terms of our understanding of, of how accuracy should be evaluated within a journalistic context. I have come to a conclusion, and I wanted you to tell me if you think this is a, a fair conclusion or not. You've done a lot of research about Carbonanda and understood his impact certainly on the New York Times, but I'm of the view that he really helped shape or reinvent what we expect of journalism today using his scientific method, so to speak, his multiple sources and accuracy, and that became the new standard for journalism in a early 20th century time frame. But it, whereas before that, it would not have been the standard. Is that a fair conclusion to draw? 
I think so. I think the way that, and, and I, I like this comparison to the scientific method because I think that's what set Van Anda apart is that his approach to information was not just an interaction with information. It was commitment to knowledge. And I think we see that throughout his career as a newsman, as we see this real dedication to the evaluation and analysis of information enough that it becomes a usable knowledge. And that is very much rooted in that scientific method. It's a careful analysis of information. It's a careful consideration of facts. He was, in so many ways, really true to this idea that journalists are fact finders. And I think he he pulled away from this notion of you know, a full-on commitment to truth-telling, right? So there wasn't this very, he didn't approach this, I think, through a very altruistic kind of perspective. It was really the nitty-gritty. It was really the facts and, and the information and the data and the evaluation of it. And we see this time and again in his management of reporting, of disaster, of science, this completeness. It's the idea that little bits of things are not helpful to us, but that if we have a complete understanding of something, we can actually use it. And I think part of that is driven by his love and his interest in science, and part of it is driven by the time in which he lived and the way that we saw engineering and science and technology really transform the world in a very unique and substantial way. His brand of journalism was something that set a standard. I agree. I think we see this in his lectures at Columbia University when the journalism school opened there. He gave a lecture on how a journalist should be trained. And one of the most interesting things about that was that really he set aside the skills training. He set aside this is how you write or this is how you report. And, and he asked students to have a command of language. To have a command of language meant to have a command of knowledge, is if you understood how to communicate ideas and information and you understood how parts of language contribute to the way that we perceive and understand and evaluate things, that you were then much better equipped to evaluate the world around you. And he, and he elevated that part of journalism. He elevated the idea that it wasn't just writing and reporting. It wasn't just operating a camera. It wasn't just being able to record. It was a command of information, a command of language, and a command of knowledge. And that, I think, you know, it, it is really what permeates the story of Carbananda, is that idea, is that who he was, you know, was not just a great a figure in American journalism, who he was, was really this complete figure in terms of commitment to knowledge and commitment to learning about the world around you in such a complete way that it allowed you to do your work well and to commit to all these ideas that we consider standards of accuracy and excellence in reporting, is that if you knew the information well enough and you were curious enough and you had a command enough of the language that allowed you to transform mere information into usable knowledge, then you were doing it right. 
And I think that's where we see the times become a paper of record, where we see the times start to really emerge as the gold standard at the time is because of that commitment and that really kind of essential part of his personality. As I mentioned, uh, 100 years ago, Ohio University awarded Carvananda an honorary degree. This also happens to be the 75th anniversary of his death. And as part of this commemoration and, and celebration of his contribution to journalism, we were scheduled to have a symposium back in the spring before COVID swept us all into our shelters. And you were going to come and speak about Carvananda, and we, we still hope that can happen you know, this coming fall. But as we were preparing before everything got shut down, as we were preparing for the symposium, I had invited uh, a couple of different science reporters at the New York Times, and uh, they both had to decline because they said, we're doing nothing but covering COVID-19. And I'm, I think in some ways that is a real legacy of Carvananda himself, even though he died 75 years ago, the newspaper that he ran still has a Science Friday section, and they have resources devoted to science reporting, which, as you said, not a lot of media outlets do that. You're right. It's a testament to the work that he did and to the commitment of the New York Times to continue that type of coverage. And we just see the, the immense importance of science reporting and understanding and being able to evaluate these major occurrences, most recently, of course, with COVID-19. I think you're perfectly right. I think that if Carl Van Ando were to manage this coverage, I wonder what that would look like. But I think his legacy and his spirit live on in the times in their commitment to doing so and to doing so well. Well, that's a great point to end on. And for those people in Athens who are interested in learning more about Carvananda, the symposium has been rescheduled for October 20th. And we look forward to having Wafa on campus to give the keynote address for that symposium. And we just hope that that life will be back to a little bit more normal situation by then. But if it doesn't happen in the fall, we're going to figure out another time because this is too big of a story to not share. And we will also every year award a Carvananda award for a lifetime achievement of, of journalism. So that legacy Wonderful. continues on. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you, Wafa. Stay safe, and we hope to see you in Athens, Ohio, in the fall. Thank you.